Thank you, Ruthann. As we interact with God's word this morning from a portion of Mark's gospel, some thought questions. What does it mean for Jesus Christ to be the Messiah? Is it possible for a follower or disciple of Christ to speak Satan's doctrine, Satan's teaching? Are you a disciple of Christ? As we think about the Gospel of Mark, Mark talks about Jesus and who he is and very strongly emphasizes his character, his being, his identity. Jesus is unique. He's the Son of God. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He is sensitive to God's Spirit. He is able to resist Satan. That's presented in Mark 1, 1 through 15. And then as you go on through the book of Mark, you find that there's words and actions of Jesus presented to demonstrate that he is the Son of God. He is who he claims to be. I'm going to go through quite a few items. I'll read them very quickly. I don't expect you to remember them, but I do want us to be overwhelmed with what Christ did do to demonstrate his identity. He proclaimed the good news of God. He taught with authority. He quieted and cast out an evil spirit. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed various diseases and drove out many demons. He prayed, talked to his father. He preached in a synagogue. He healed a man with leprosy. He healed a paralytic or paralyzed man. He called Levi a tax collector, the rejects, so to speak, of society to follow him. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He taught concerning fasting. He taught concerning the Sabbath. He called 12 to be with him to preach and to drive out demons. He taught concerning blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. He redefined family. He taught his disciples concerning the kingdom of God. He is Lord over nature. Could he a demon-possessed man that no one could bind? Raised a girl from the dead and healed a sick woman. Acknowledged that even he must be acknowledged for his being, character, and identity if he is to heal. He sends a twelve out to reach and heal and cast out demons. He feeds 5,000 men. He sends the twelve into a difficult situation so that they would come to understand him. He taught that the heart, which is displayed in words and actions, is so critical. He has power over evil spirits, even when they're not in his presence. He feeds 4,000. He responded wisely to the Pharisees' questions. He used the disciples' lack of bread as a teachable moment. He has power to bind a blind man. And again, we're dealing with Christ and who he is. The 12 have been called to be with him, and they have probably been with him for a year or more. And as you look at the immediate context of Mark chapter 8, 31 through chapter 9 and verse 1, we find that Jesus had posed a question you know, who am I? Or who does the world say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And then he says, but who do you say that I am? 
And Peter responded, you're the Christ. To this point in Mark's gospel, only God and the demons have recognized Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. See, Israel was looking for a king. They were looking for a Messiah that would deliver from the enemies, cause Israel to live in peace, tranquility, and to rule in justice and glory. This hope comes to the full flower, if you want to call it that, in the Psalms of Solomon, one of the writings that would communicate what Israel felt about the Messiah. And I read, O Lord, raise up their king, the son of David, that he may reign over Israel thy servant. Gird him with strength that he may shatter on righteous rulers, that he may purge Jerusalem from nations that trample her to destruction. Wisely, righteously, he shall thrust out sinners from the, the inheritance. He shall destroy the pride of the sinners, a potter's vessel. With a rod of iron, he shall break in pieces all the substance. He shall destroy the godless nation with the word of his mouth. At his rebuke, nations shall fall before him, and he shall reprove sinners for the thoughts of their hearts. He shall gather together a holy people whom he shall lead in righteousness, and he shall judge the tribes of the people that have been sanctified by the Lord his God. And he shall not allow unrighteousness to lodge any more in their midst. Nor shall there dwell with them any man who knows wickedness. For he shall know them that they are all the sons of God. The concept of the Messiah in the day of Jesus was that he's going to come as a king. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. But what does Jesus say about the Messiah? What is his view of discipleship? Let's read Mark 8, 31 through 9, 1. He is blowing away what the disciples would have thought. Mark 8 and verse 31. <clears throat> he then began to teach them that the Son of Man, the one that Peter would have just said, you are the Christ, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this idolatrous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth. Some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. For the twelve to hear that uh, the Messiah was going to suffer, be rejected, and must be killed was radical. 
but it's really not so radical when you understand the identity, the being and the character of Jesus that has been communicated to this point in Mark's gospel. James Edwards says concerning this passage, at the beginning of the gospel, Mark announced Jesus to be the Christ. But until this point in time, it's been kept under wraps. For the first time, we are now told that Jesus spoke plainly about his purpose and mission. The word for plainly, which in John's gospel often refers to Jesus' bold disclosure of his purpose, only in connection with impending suffering. Peter is called Jesus Messiah, and Jesus now begins to explain what it means. The explanation results in bewilderment and dismay, not only because of the implications of Messiahship, but equally because of the implications for discipleship. End of quote. See, we need to understand that Jesus as Messiah is coming on the scene, and he says the Messiah, the one that Peter just said, you are the Christ. Jesus says he must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. Note, rejection by the religious leaders. Not only must he be rejected by religious leaders, he must be killed. And then after three days, rise from the dead. See, the disciples would have been thinking a Messiah, a king, a deliverance. And Jesus says, no. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Be rejected by the elders chief priests, teachers of the law, and must be killed, and after three days, rise again. See, he's redefining Messiahship. He's redefining what it means to be Christ. He teaches that which was puzzling for the twelve, because they were thinking something totally different. In Israel, there was not the expectation that the Messiah would suffer and be rejected and be killed. The prediction of Jesus and his suffering, his rejection, conceals a great irony. For the suffering and death of the Son of Man will come as we would expect at the hands of godless and wicked people. No, the suffering of Christ comes at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. It's not humanity at, at its worst that will crucify the Son of God, but humanity at its best. The death of Jesus will not be the result of a momentary lapse of human nature, but rather the result of careful, deliberate action from respected religious leaders who thought they were doing a service to God according to John 16 and verse 2. Jesus will not be lynched and 
or by an enraged mob or beaten to death in a criminal act. He will be arrested with official warrants, tried and executed by the world's envy, the Jewish Sanhedrin. That's contrary to what the 12 would have thought about being the Messiah. The Jewish Sanhedrin consisted of the elders, chief priests, and scribes. The elders comprised 70 lay members of the ruling council, both Sadducees and Pharisees. The chief priest, including the current high priest of the Sanhedrin and his predecessors, as well as family members, are the ones who would be instrumental in the crucifixion of Christ. It would be equal today to missionaries and pastors and seminary professors crucifying Christ. That's not Messiahship, at least not from the 12 point of view. So much different than what the 12 expected. What does Peter do? Well, before we get to Peter, he spoke plainly about this. Jesus is clearly communicating what it means to be the Christ, what it means to be the Messiah. Suffering, rejection, death, and coming from the dead. Peter, in verse 32, took him aside and began rebuke him. The word for rebuke means to place value upon something. Peter heard what Jesus said. He placed value on it and said, this is ridiculous. And he begins to say, Jesus, we don't know what he says, but he's rebuking him. Jesus, look, the Messiah doesn't do this. This isn't what you came for. The Messiah is not, does not involve suffering, rejection. It does not involve being killed. That's not what Messiahship is about. It's interesting that the follower rebukes the Christ in his majestic being, identity, and character. Rebuke is customarily used for rebuking demons. That is the worst and most ultimate form of evil. But here we find Peter using rebuke towards the Messiah. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, we don't know the response of the disciples. Were they agreeing with Peter and saying, oh, yeah, you're, you're right, Peter? We don't know. But he looked at his disciples, and then he rebuked Peter. Jesus gave a value to what Peter said. And what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus is speaking to one of the 12 that he called to follow him. Get behind me, Satan. Yeah. 
You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus faced a temptation by the enemy, Satan, in the wilderness. And he said something very similar to Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. Here he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Satan, obviously involved in what Peter said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. See, Jesus, is, or, um, <clears throat> Jesus sees in Peter's rebuke an opposition as that which is lacking for the Messiah, thus a reprimand. Because the plan for Jesus involves the incarnation. Jesus coming, living, dying, to think in human terms, when human terms conflict with the things of God, it's no longer to be a disciple of Jesus, but a disciple of Satan. See, God's plan included rejection. It included suffering. It included the cross. It included coming from the dead. And Peter's saying, no, Christ, no. And who's he playing into? Demonic teaching. How many times did Christ have to try to get through to his disciples that the view of Messiahship is different from God's perspective than from a human perspective? Go to chapter 9 and verse 31. In chapter 9 and verse 31, well, 30 and 31, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were going because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Go over to chapter 10 and verse 33. Jesus again is speaking to the twelve. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hold him or hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three, de three days later, he will rise. Please understand that the 12 were not getting it. Oh, Messiah, king, ruler. Jesus says, no, Messiah. Suffering, rejection, being killed, and rising from the dead. A marked difference. And the difference being so strong that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And that's when he calls a crowd to him and he says, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, and so on, and we'll discuss that in the future. I think sometimes we're tempted to pour Jesus into old wineskins, attempting to identify him with other religious leaders rather than putting him in a category all himself. See, the world's point of view, the religious point of view in this day was Messiah, King. Jesus says, no, I will suffer. I will be rejected. And that influences the call to discipleship because discipleship may mean difficulty. In light of this passage, some of the most difficult times for the disciples of Christ may not come from unbelievers, but religious people. The most difficulty for Jesus came at the hands of religious people. And sometimes the same is true today. As we follow Christ, as we follow the one who suffered, was rejected, who was killed, and who came from the dead, some of the most difficulty may come from, quote-unquote, religious people. Peter wanted a Messiah without suffering. You can't have a Messiah without suffering. Think about the implications for us today. Do we want a Christ as our Messiah, but without suffering? Do we want to follow Christ as his disciples and say no suffering? Some professing believers may be tempted to have a wrong view of Christ and his being, his character, his identity. That's a wrong view of discipleship. They may want to escape from hell and to go to heaven, not a call to rejection, a call to suffering, a call to possible death. See, as the Messiah went, that's what he calls his followers to. If we offer the gospel of Christ without suffering, Are we playing into satanic doctrine or teaching? Ah, we come to Christ. He'll make everything well. Everything will be fine. And you go to heaven when you die. Maybe we need to say, we're calling you to follow Christ. But Christ was rejected. He suffered. He died. And part of discipleship or discipleship itself may involve some suffering, some rejection, and even being killed. See, in America, we struggle with Jesus' view of discipleship because we live in a country that has very, very little persecution. But you go over to Vietnam, and someone shares Christ 
And they say, you know, if you come to faith in Christ, just want you to know that you might die tomorrow. There's going to be rejection. There's going to be suffering. In Iran, someone is invited to follow Christ because they have seen that Christians are different. They've seen some of them die. You have to say, you know, this call to Christ influences the eternity. But you might suffer. You might be rejected and you might die. Are you sure you want to follow him? Do you want to be his disciple? That's why Peter had a difficult time. Because he's thinking messiahship, kingship. And Jesus says, no, let me redefine messiahship to suffering, to rejection, to being killed, and then coming from the dead. Yes, messiahship in terms of kingship and so on comes in the future, but before that comes the suffering. Who do you say Jesus is? What does your life show? Do you claim one item but live another? Do you know by experience who Jesus is? How would you answer the question raised by Jesus in chapter 8 and verse 29? Who do you say that I am? We struggle with a suffering Savior. We see no redeeming value in suffering. We want fix now, maturity now, but not through suffering. We want and expect ease in this world, but it is suffering of various types that drives us to Christ alone and his sufficiency. As long as we can make it, we're fine. True disciples are living like the hall of faith, faith in Hebrews 11 through chapter 12 and verse 3. We're called to suffer as Christ suffered. So as you think about discipleship, you think about Messiahship. Think about it from Christ's perspective and the call that he offers. He goes on then, take up or deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it and so on. But see, if we know who Christ is and his identity, his character, his being, there's a willingness as the Spirit convicts to say, yes, I will follow Christ. Even though it may involve some rejection and some suffering. Let's pray together.